Thank you all for remaining standing. If you take a peek in your bulletin, which sometimes we do, sometimes we don't, you'll notice uh, it's chapter 7 and 8 that we're covering today. You may be saying, is the preacher fixing to read and then that be the sermon? No, it's not the case. And I'm not going to read both all of both chapters. What I'd like to do this morning, if you're with me, simply turned. Chapter 8, verse 9, and we'll read verses 9 through 12. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the, Lord, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, and to send portions, and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. You may be seated. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time this morning. Father, you've given us a chance that I pray we not take for granted. Lord, I pray that we understand the value of the things that we do on a weekly basis, the eternal significance that they have in our lives. This morning we have a chance to look at your word, and Lord, we can either hear it, read it, and ignore it, or we can hear it, see it, see you, and obey it. Father, I pray that we obey it, and I pray that through your spirit you would shape us into the people that you desire us to be. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. As we start this morning, I want to give you a little bit of context and then kind of introduce you to what we're going to talk about. And you may notice again what was actually in uh, the bulletin, verses or chapters 7 and 8. So I'm going to go ahead and tell you this morning, we'll get as far as we get. Um, there's only so much preachers can kind of plan And I want to camp out as long as the Lord would have us to here in these chapters. And so if we're here for two weeks, that's perfectly fine. If all of a sudden we get through everything I've got this morning, that's fine too. We'll see. We'll see how things go. But we need to ask a question. How did we get here in chapter eight and chapter seven and eight? Of course, the quick and easy answer is, well, we've been preaching through it. Yes, that's true. And I pray you've been listening. But how did Nehemiah get here? Where, how did things come to be in this, in this passage? If you remember, you've been here with us for a minute, it all began with concern, weeping over the destruction of the walls of Jerusalem, over this state of Nehemiah's hometown, his city, the place that he loved and the place that gave glory to God, and that was Jerusalem. And so it, after that, he went on to pray. And he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed. And then 
Time for actions uh, struck as he spoke with Artaxerxes, the king. And there was an opportunity, and so he took it. And God went before him and provided all that he needed in order to rebuild the walls that were in Jerusalem. And as he went about doing this, he was a master leader, a wonderful planner, and he accomplished what God had said in his heart, but he did not do so without opposition. And so he encountered opposition after opposition after opposition. Names Sanballat and Tobiah ought to come to mind. But that didn't stop, and the wall was built that we saw last week. And now, now we come to a time that's a bit of shift in things going on. The wall's built, things are done, Nehemiah charged ahead, and so did God's people. Now what we start to see is actual revival, not just work. And the shout, the, the, the heart of the people was essentially this, bring us the book. Bring us the book. And so that's where we are in these chapters, where at least we'll get in chapter 8. And you'll see why we're not skipping over chapter 7 here in a moment. But let me ask you this as we begin. Would you miss the preaching if we left after the singing? Now, obviously, I'm the preacher, so I would hope so. Right? But let me ask it a bit different. Would you miss the impact of God's word on your life if we left after the singing? This isn't a time for everyone to look at the preacher and see if he can do a good job or not. And simply this morning, what I hope we do or have an opportunity to do is to kind of remind ourselves why it is we do what we do on a regular basis and then pray that God would revive us in terms of actually loving his word and putting it where it should be. But would you miss it? Or would it just be kind of like, well, I, that's fine, we sang some good songs. In other words, how central is the word of God to our lives? to what we do at church, to what we do on a regular basis, to how we live, how we raise our kids, to how we work, to how we have fun in the backyard. How central is God's word to our lives? Maybe it's central in word, in verbal form, but not central among the people, which is what we find a lot of in this day and time. Great, we went and heard the preacher. He gave us some encouraging words. He told us a one, two, three step program of how to have a better life and to get what you want when you go back to work the next day. And all the while, what we often end up missing is the heaviness and the weightiness of actually meeting God because God is the one who speaks. Or we love the Bible, but don't tell us too much about it. See, all of these things is the normal sentiment of people that gather in church. And praise God, it's not the sentiment of all of us here. But we need to understand the day and time in which we live. Every church folk you meet down the street or at your workplace does not believe the same things about the Bible just because they say they're Christians and just because they go to church. These were the people of God. 
And it was only here and now that they finally went, you know what, we need to get back to the law. And so they did. Or maybe this, we love the Bible, but don't tell us to obey it. And I can't tell y'all how often that comes up. And it's tempting. And it's not just something that comes up out here. It's something that comes up even in the heart of the preacher. So I study through the week and look at what God's word says. And I go, oh, man, I've got to deal with this with me first before I even tell everyone else what it is that God's word says. And what happens all too often is the preacher skirts around that, fails to deal with it himself, and therefore can't proclaim the truth of God's word to other people. Or we love the Bible, but I refuse to submit to it. Here's a quick dose of reality. No Bible equals no life. No God's word equals no life. That's biblical. You know why? Because in the beginning, it was the word that was there. God spoke and things came into being and life was created and made. If there is no word of God, there is no life to be had. And so then we come where we are here in Nehemiah chapter 8. What I'd like to do this morning is kind of play out the tension that's in this passage and play out the tension that I've set forth before us this morning. Answering this question, how central is the Word of God in our lives? Is it as central as it is to the people here in Nehemiah chapter 8? As it is to Ezra and Nehemiah himself? But as we answer this question, one of the first things we need to take note of before we get to verse 1 of chapter 8, which says, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. That's a wonderful verse. Bring out the book, they say. We need to recognize first, though, who it is that's asking Ezra to do this wonderful thing. And the answer to that is, and this is number one, it's God's people. In other words, God knows his people. We need to recognize this before we get to what it is that God's people so desired that is God's word. Is oftentimes what happens just in regular life, we assume that everyone is just fine with God. Everyone probably kind of loves Jesus. They may not love him as much as I do or as much as everyone else at my church does, but they're probably still fine. The reality is, is that if you're not part of God's people, you're in opposition to him. There's no fence straddling here in God's word. It's one way or the other. I want you to notice we are not going to go through, and if you're worried this morning, about 73 verses here in chapter 7, please do not fret. We're not going to go through each one of them. Now, I would love, and wouldn't you love it too, Mr. Jimmy, I would love to challenge some of you to read what is in these verses. That might be fun trivia sometime. But other than that, I want you to look at verse 5. We covered a bit of chapter 7 last week. The wall had been built in verse 1, but in verse 5 we get to something interesting. Then God put into my heart, God put something else into Nehemiah's heart. Nehemiah is the the leader here, the pastor leader, so to speak. 
he put in his heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy, to mark down who were God's people. You know, he put this on his heart, but notice how what he put on his heart is in accordance with what his word is. There was already a book of genealogy of God's people. And I found the book of the genealogy, still it already existed. And this puts a question in front of our faces. Is what God is what we believe to be in our hearts always in accordance with God's word? Or not? We need to test what is said in our hearts against the word of God and find if it matches or not. But notice here for Nehemiah, it matches. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first and found written in it this. And he goes on. These were the people of the province who came out of the captivity of those exiles who Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. And he goes on and starts to read what it is that was recorded there, who it was, the groups, the families, and all these such things. And then when he gets to the end, verse 73, so the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all of Israel lived in their own towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their own towns. In other words, he's just summarizing. They go back to, this is where everybody is. Now we can get what I believe the Bible communicates without reading all of these names listed here. But you notice no stone is left unturned. Every group seems to be recorded. But I want you to also notice that, at least in my Bible, I don't know about yours, but it only lasts a couple pages. Which means there's people that existed that weren't listed. They wanted to be, but they weren't. We simply need, as a church, to allow for that reality as Christians. And often we don't want to. And we'll cite things saying God is loving, God cares so much, God doesn't want anyone to be lost. And all those things are true. But where the misstep takes place is when we try to apply them wrongly. God does not cease to be all who he is, holy, strong, mighty, and powerful, just to accommodate our sinful state and rebellion. He did that in sending his son in flesh. In other words, let me put it to you this way, and I think this is specifically applicable for us this morning, and I will say it, and then we will move on. If we are more concerned about those who left us, who never submitted to God's word to join us, then we are about those who joined us and submit to God's word with us. Your priorities are not in order. Now, as I read that, you probably said, okay, you lost me, preacher. I don't even know what you just said. I understand that. Let me say it a different way. We need to be able to distinguish between the new wall being built among us and the rubble that's left over. In other words, adjust your attention to God's work being done in this place and not to those that seem to want to walk away because they never wanted to submit to God's word in the first place as it was proclaimed here in these walls. And I hope you're listening to me this morning. The back door of the church, the church house, there should be a crack in it. 
The front door needs to be open. But if we're so concerned about those that will not submit to God's word, that we do not even celebrate those who God has actually added to us, we have our priorities wrong and we're not paying attention to what is written in God's word. There are people that were listed and there were people that were not. And that's as simple as that. I cannot tell you how often I get as a preacher, well, JP, what about how these people felt? Well, what about how these people felt? What about how these people felt? What are they doing now? Where are they at? I cannot keep up with those who God has not called me to actually shepherd. He's called me to watch over a particular people. Those particular people are marked off by church membership. And I'm not going to stand up here and skirt around what I believe to be applicable in God's word simply because I'm scared of stepping on toes. This is where we find the hard truths of why we do what we do on a regular basis. And what you'll notice is over time, churches slide easily away from this. And then you'll end up with, and I remember peers asking professors such and such when I was in school, well, what's the point of membership in the first place of being on a roll when God loves everyone? We're mixing a lot of things there together. See, what's amazing here is that this book of genealogy that existed before Nehemiah began to read it and add to it points to the book of life that would be read at the end. The Bible is a long, wonderful story of redemption. We need to take note of that and that there will be those whose name is not only just not in the genealogy, but it's not in the book of life. And we cannot make them write their name if they will not submit to who owns the book. Do you understand what I'm saying this morning? We proclaim the word and the good news and then we go on building. Like I said, we'll get as far as we get this morning. But it's about time to move on to chapter 8. But let me put it this way real quick as we, as we see what's in chapter 7. Some principles for us to abide by. We do not adjust the book of the law to make more room for names in the book of life. We do not adjust our standards on marriage, homosexuality, and the like just to accommodate names in the book of life. Because guess what happens when you change God's law? God frowns upon that. And in fact, even when you say that, when you change God's law, you're not changing God's law. You're changing your obedience to it. Now, oftentimes, we only think about obeying God in terms of our individual experiences in life. We don't think about it how it looks corporately. And we'll take this view. Well, let me just step back. I'll worry about me. But we need to accommodate as many people as we possibly can on this side of heaven. My answer to that, I believe the Bible supports it, is simply no. We accommodate those who are God's. And let God add them to us. 
even as we sit here this morning. Notice those that are among us and praise God for it. It's quite that simple. And so we open the door for membership to all who submit to God's word. And so this issue begs a question. How can we say we love God's word if we do not submit to it? If we are God's people, if our names are written in the book of life, how can we say we love God's word if we are his people and yet do not submit to what it is that he has said? Because see, here's number two that we gather from the first part of chapter eight. God's people, he knows his people. And God's people love his word, don't they? At least they should. Imagine there's no one in here this morning that if I asked you to say amen when I said, don't you love his word, you would say, nah. Everyone wants to say amen, don't you? No one in their right mind is going to say, no, I do not love God's word. And yet, that's what we expect those who are in opposition to God's glory to actually say and proclaim. That they're going to somehow, as we're gathered, having a good Sunday morning, walk in, stand at the back of the church and say, hey, everybody, we're the people that don't want to obey God's word. That's not how it works, is it? If you notice, how was Sanballat characterized uh, previously when we've looked at? He was connected. Everybody knew him. And to the point that they were, because of how well known he was, they were trying to make Nehemiah fearful of him being renowned. It was apparent to Nehemiah that he was an enemy, but it was not apparent to everyone else. But notice what happens. This is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful passage, y'all. What happens in verse 1? And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra. Ezra was the prophet, right? There's a book of Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah were basically buddies. Uh, They lived at the same time doing the work of the Lord, albeit in different ways. But here, they're together. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law to Moses that had the that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. I'll pause there. I just want to say this. Y'all, how wonderful it would be. Y'all, I'll be so pumped every Sunday morning. Already most of the time I am. But if when we got together, y'all stood in the back, And said, bring out the book, bring out the book, in excitement for preaching. And I'm sure every preacher just about has made this comparison, but I'm going to make it even still. Why is it that in this season, we can storm football fields for our teams? We can remove goalposts and run and throw them in the river. We can wear colors. And pride, and I'm not saying don't do that. Love your football teams, all right? I'm not saying that at all. But why is it that we take so for granted the eternal reality of our names being listed in the book of life, of God's word, us having God's word so close to us, here right before us? Why are we a celebratory over things that God has given us. And this is for me too, y'all. Don't think I got up here and get to just skim by it. Why is that? Here's why. Because we take what God has given us for granted. 
just as God's people did here. I didn't mean to be careful or I'm going to get ahead of myself. Notice what else happens, the things that go along with this, how God's people love his word. What did they do? They asked him to bring out God's word, which means they knew the value of it, which means they also knew who they were and who they're not. They're not the other nations. They're the people of God. They had the proper expectation of the prophet that was before him to bring it out as well. So Ezra the priest brought out the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. And on the first day of the seventh month, and notice the unity that's here, and the people gathered as one man, verse 1, into the square before. All of God's people wanted to hear together what it is that God had to say. There is a unity of desire. And what do you get from God's word other than knowing who God is and submitting to him in life? And I think this is one of the key things here. God's people wanted to know their God. And so they said, bring out the books, Nehemiah, all together. And he read from it, verse 3, facing the square before the water gate from the early morning until midday. Now, I don't want to, I say this in jest. I don't want to hear the preacher went too long, okay? We got things like this here. Early morning until midday, y'all. You can give me 45 minutes, all right? In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. They desired God's word. And Ezra the scribes stood on a wooden platform and they had, that they had made for the purpose. Now, this is, seems a little bit like it's tangential or a side note. This is why we have pulpits, y'all. This is, why, this is literally why this sanctuary is made it's the way it's made. And it's varied over hundreds of years as to what it was. Used to, back in the day, back in the day of the Reformers, there was essentially a preacher's box in the middle of, of, of the sanctuary, or sometimes to the side or here or there, the preacher would walk up a little bit, bit he set of stairs in and get up in and there and proclaim. Of course, now we have microphones, so we don't have to worry about um, how, just how audible. But that's why we have what we have. That's why we do what we do. Preaching for God's people has never been out of vogue. Though it is today and always will be in the world, that's why during COVID, when everyone discussed, talked about, let's just have Facebook services and stuff like that, you cannot know. You cannot circumvent proclaiming the word of God in the physical gathering of God's people, no matter how much the world, Satan, and the flesh want to prevent it from happening. Now, like I said, that's kind of an aside and Ezra described, stood on a wooden platform, and they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood, now I'm going to butcher these, Mattathiah, Shema, and Ananiah. I put an extra in in that, y'all. I apologize. Uriah, Hakiah, and uh, Messiah on his right hand. And he keeps naming all these guys. In verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. 
and as he opened it for all the people stood. Now it is unfortunate that I'm not as well versed in Hebrew as I would like to be, but that is something that is ongoing, and praise the Lord for that. But yet, I think we can still get what this passage is about. There was Ezra, and there were men there standing beside him, helping him give a sense of what this word meant. And so verse 5, he opened the book in the sight of all the people. He was above the people, and he opened it. And notice what happens here. If y'all ever wondered why we stand at the reading of God's word before every message, this is why. And the people stood when he read Back in that day, Tom, in their context, it was a great sign of honor to stand in someone's presence. And I want you to think about that. We do that still in, in different ways today, don't we? But see how this gets missed? When you're in your house, now just think about this and hear a voice. What's your first assumption if you don't recognize it? There's somebody else in that house, Right? Notice how easily it is for us to connect something that's audible or a voice to a physical presence. Now, you don't honor the stranger in your house probably like you do someone you know, do you? You're wondering why they're there, and you're probably wanting to get them out. But when you're in a restaurant and a familiar voice, you hear a familiar voice behind you say, hello, how are you doing, or start messing with you and comes up, and you immediately know who they are, and you stand up, and you turn around, and you likely give them a hug. So if God's word is actually his word, then why do we not stand to honor him as he manifests his presence among us, as he speaks? See, this is what we've forgotten in a church. It's because we just simply go through the motions. And I don't mean as a church here at New Vision. I mean as a church here in this, this part of the world. And you, please do not tell me that we're in the middle of a revival right now. We're not. Now, I pray that that would certainly happen, and I believe it is good to pray for such. But a revival only takes place when God's Spirit actually moves like it did in John chapter 3. You don't see it coming, and yet what you do see is the product of it moving, of Him moving. But revival only comes, and you can see this throughout church history, right? In Acts, the Reformation, the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening in America. What became central and known in each of these circumstances? What even were, were, was the church persecuted for? The preaching of God's word. It is good for us to pray for such church. But please hear me when I say this. It will not happen. It will not happen until our pulpits are revived. Until we stop having people that think they're Nehemiah standing behind pulpits, or think they're Ezra and Nehemiah standing behind pulpits. And we finally get men who are not scared to actually open up the book and read what it says. That is the only way. And there are a few, and praise God for them. But before we even try to attempt that kind of change here in our country, let's first focus in Haywood County. What if the Christians in Haywood County celebrated 
God's word like this. Instead of just in name only, claiming to be in the book of life, and yet never actually submitting to the word of God. We may be farther off from this than we ever realized, church. And so he goes on, verse 6, And Ezra, bless the Lord, the great God. Notice how God is talked about when his word is brought out. He is praised as great and wonderful and awesome. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. I mean, picture what's going on here, y'all. And I want you to understand this too. We're always chasing the grandiose as Christians usually. I can can remember when I first started in ministry, I didn't know right from left. I was counting on all the brothers kind of around me. I still get those confused sometimes, but it's okay. And all I remember hearing most often was, if we could just get revival here, if we could just get revival here, if we could just get revival here, let's have a tent meeting here, let's invite this preacher here, this person here. And I kept thinking, how do y'all have time to love your folks and just work with them and where God's working in their own lives as much as you talk and want to do all these fanciful things? And if you ever wanted to know why we don't have regular revivals here, this is why, because you cannot conjure up God like he's some genie in a bottle. And if we think, and if Christians think that you can, it's time to bring the book back out because we've forgotten who God is. Notice how they praise him when this happens. When he speaks, they say, amen, amen. Truly, truly, in agreement is what that means. Absolutely agree. Physically lifting up their hands. Now, I know we're Baptists, all right. But maybe sometimes it's appropriate. And I'm as guilty of this as anybody else. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to have interpretive dancing up here in the front of the church. Y'all know me better than that. But if our hearts were as celebratory as these people's were, and they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now, notice what comes after this. See, so these, uh, these, these guys were here. In verse 7, those gentlemen listed helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. It's back and forth about what exactly this means. I think it simply means what it says it means. They helped them understand what was being read, whether they it was a language issue, barrier or whether it was simply trying to understand because they hadn't heard it in a while. They helped them understand, and they read from the book, from the law of God clearly and gave the sense. In other words, this is what preaching is. Preaching is giving a sense of the word of God, explaining it, applying it, setting it forth. Why? So that the people understood the reading. Here's the general summary of this first point. God's people love God's word. So the question is, do we? Do we value it the way that God's people did as they were being revived back then. Now, this reminds me of right Psalm 19 that speaks of God's word. And there's also Psalm 119. Psalm 19 says this. It talks about 
what God has made first. And then it goes on to talk about how valuable God's word actually is itself. The law of the Lord is perfect, doing what? Arriving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise and simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, during forever. Rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And how much are they to be desired? More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. How does God's word compare to what you value in your life? Or as a church? Now, it may be right up there at the top. I'm not saying it's not. But I do think in light of what's here, we need to reassess. I want people to be so overwhelmed by God's word when they come in this church that they can't help but go, God is here. And I know y'all can tell me, and, I, and I've seen this too, but you can walk into church and wonder if the people there even know their God. Because the book is dusty and hidden, and set aside, and used as an ornament to decorate the facade of holiness that's been put forth and walls that's been built. That's not what God's doing here, by the way, y'all. And Lord, help me if it ever happens under my watch. Because it's happening down the street all the time. So God's people love his word. 2 Timothy 3.16, we've been reading this over and over and over and over again. God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword, sufficient for all these things. And so we see this in verse 8, but the question that we need to ask ourselves, and maybe we'll look at this and then we'll close up. How about this, y'all? I think we're coming to actually a good stopping place. Let's take these last two points next Sunday. Next Sunday, we'll look at what, it, what revival actually looks like. Now, I want you to notice... In verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And so let me ask you, let me help us apply this as we come to a close. We'll pick up verse 9 next Sunday. How many Bibles do you have in your home? There's no telling how many you probably have. How worn are they? Now, if you come to church and go, look how worn my Bible is, everybody else, that's a whole other topic, a whole other discussion, because that's a pride problem. That's a pharisaical way of looking at it. But let me seriously ask you this. Do you think that coming and hearing me speak about what God's Word says is sufficient for your life? without looking at his word through the rest of these six days. It's not. Well, let me ask you this. If you had your devotionals, but you didn't have God's word, how would that change your life? For a lot of us, it might not change it too much. Because often we're more reliant on what people say about it than we are about actually knowing it ourselves.
What happens if you lose if you lose knowing that voice? What happens if your friend who comes up to you, you've forgotten their voice and you don't recognize it even though they know you? And they call your name and you actually do stand up, but you turn around and you look confused. Because you've forgotten their voice. The only way we recognize God is by regularly listening to what it is that he says. And he doesn't speak in an audible voice today. And if anyone says, God has spoken to me and I heard him speak to me, you need to run and hightail it the opposite direction. He has spoken to us through the prophets, through this word here. And as Hebrews 1 says, finally through his son, who is the word. So how central is the Bible to your life and to what we do as a church? And understand this, the more central you make it in your life, you won't just have Sam Ballots and Tobias looking at you going, you know what, you need to quit that, being in opposition. You'll have Christians down the street going, why are you so honorary about what God's Word says? Just relax. We live in a day and time in which that is the great temptation, to be relaxed about God's word. My charge to us, in light of God's people here calling for Ezra to bring out the book, is not to relax, but to get excited, to demand it. Now, I'm not saying next Sunday y'all need to wear all your football T-shirts and everything and come in ringing cowbells and everything else saying, bring out the book, J.P., Y'all might scare me just a little bit. What I am saying is this. Take it seriously. If not for your own sake, but for the next generation, the generation after that. Because there's kids in this church. What are we building for them that's going to be they, they be there 30 years down the road? We ought not be in a place where they have to come to the preacher and say, why don't you bring out the book? The book should have always been brought out. And that's what we want to do as God's people. Because he knows us, so let's love his word. Let's pray. Lord, what a wonderful example Nehemiah, Ezra, and God's people are. And Father, I pray that you would simply help us to love, love your word as much as they did. Lord, that to revive us as you revived them. Lord, and not just us here sitting in these pews, but Lord, that you would revive, revive the proclamation of your word in this community. Lord, help us to desire it. Lord, and to call those men that stand behind the pulpits to bring out the law and nothing else. And Father, furthermore, help us to obey it and stand firm on it and not be shaken when every temptation and wind of doctrine comes our way, Lord. And praise God, you do not change, God. We are reliant on you in all these things. And we ask 
all of it in your son's name. Amen.